Well, hello once again to Yorkshire Gamers Big War Games podcast, and something a little bit different for episode forty-one. I am going to be interviewing a chap called Nick Schofield, and uh, Nick has written a book on the British and Irish volunteers in the Papal States in the eighteen sixties and seventies. So it's going to be great to chat with him about a subject that's uh, of real interest to me. Uh, a little bit of a niche subject. So uh, hopefully you are going to stick with us. Either you're a return listener or maybe you're interested in this period of history and you've popped in for the first time to the Yorkshire Gamer podcast, in which case you are most welcome. And I hope you'll stay for some more episodes or maybe go back and have a listen to some of the ones that we've done in the past. I'll speak a little bit in a moment about the format of this episode, uh, but I just want to say thank you very much for the reception for the last two episodes that I've done uh, since I came back after the break at Christmas with Martin Kelly and Steve Shan. Both episodes have absolutely flown in terms of uh, downloads and uh, lots of positive feedback. So thank you very much, uh, everyone. Um, I've started publishing on a Monday now, and I don't know whether that's made a difference or not. Uh, but uh, thank you, everyone, for continuing to listen or coming along to listen for the first time. You are all very, very welcome. In personal news, I am going to be attending Salute this year, uh, down in that there London where they have gas and electricity and everything. And I shall, uh, I've already seen the mayor and he's quite happy for me to go. I've got my passport stamped. I've had some uh, anti avocado vaccinations that will, I'll make sure that I'm, you know, I'm able to shake hands with people if they've got some, you know, um, residue of avocado on the hand i'm not going to be affected and i'll still be a lover of mushy peas when i get back up to north at the end of the day so i'm looking forward to that looking forward to meeting lots of people um i will be wearing my uh, blue yorkshire game t-shirt uh, so i'm quite easy to identify and uh, by all means, come along, have a chat, and uh, it'd be lovely to meet a lot of people. I've already arranged to uh, meet up with a few down there at Salute, so I am really looking forward to my day out in that there, London. Really am. So, on to this episode, and uh, it's going to be different to the ones that we normally have. My guest uh, is not a war gamer, although he did have a little bit of a dabble in the past, so the, the format's different. Uh, I don't have the quiz. There isn't any of the uh you know the sections on desert island war game that sort of stuff um uh so it's a slightly different format which i want to introduce on a now and then basis occasionally when i want to speak to somebody like nick who isn't a war gamer primarily and talk around a subject that's maybe historical or you know uh tactics or something along those lines it's going to be maybe one or two episodes a year that I think I'll probably do this. Uh, I've already got the other formats of the catch-up and the Brews in the Binyard as well as the normal episodes. Uh, and I'm just um, stretching out to make sure that Yorkshire Gamer podcast stays around for quite a long time and with still over 50 guests ready to uh, take the plunge. Um, it's going to be three years at least. So uh, this. Uh, there's uh, lots of room for the podcast to continue in its current format. So I'm going to talk to Nick very quickly about his um, background, and then we're into the book and we're talking about the Papal States, the St. Patrick's Battalion, and the Papal Zouaves. might not be your period of history, but 
I hope you stay along because Nick is a really engaging chap and he knows his stuff about the Papal States and I really enjoyed doing this episode. So sit back, get this set a cup of tea and without further ado, here's the interview. Well, hello everyone and welcome once again to the interview section of the podcast. And as I mentioned in the introduction, today will be a little bit different to the normal, as my guest is the first to, to not primarily be a wargamer. Although he's admitted to a little dabble in the hobby earlier in his life, and hopefully he'll fill us in on that later on. But my guest is here today as a writer and historian. Many of you out there will know that I have a soft spot for the Papal States in both the Italian Wars and the Italian Risorgimento. It's the latter that my guest is here to chat about today. He's authored a number of books on other subjects in the past, but uh, he's delved into military history. So I'm looking forward to having a deep dive into his book about the British and Irish volunteers who travelled to Italy to defend the Papal States during the Risorgimento. What made that lad from County Cork travel to Rome? Was it the pasta, the coffee, or the uniforms of the St. Patrick's Battalion or the Papal Zouaves? <laughs> well, let's find out, shall we? <laughs> As we say, a big Yorkshire gamer hello to our latest guest. It's uh, Nick Schofield. Hello, Nick. Hi, Ken, and I feel so privileged to be allowed as a non-war gamer into this holy of holies. You know, I feel like it's, <laughs> I, I, I'm part of a kind of Trojan horse that's breached the walls. Um, and yep. thank you for letting, letting me in. No, well, you are you are the first one, and this is a this is a bit of a pilot uh, to see whether we can let other historians on. Um, my friend Stephen Barker, who's uh, a big World War One historian, uh, but is also a big war gamer as well. So he's he's been on, but you are the first what I'm going to call non-war gamer. So are you happy with that, uh, that title? Absolutely. But I, I kind of, you know, in a way I self-identify as a, as a bit of a war gamer, a kind of almost yeah. war gamer, um, as I'll perhaps say in a, you know, a bit later about my little dabble as a, as a teenager. Um, so I'm kind of familiar, I'm familiar with the world, but I've never really done a, a, a big war game in the Ken sense. In the Ken sense, oh, that's good. That's good. And um, have you ever done a podcast before? Have you ever done anything like this on any subject? No, I've, I've done a few videos and things, but not not a podcast. No. So oh, this is excellent. and, and wow. this 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 technology is fantastic, and and it's great also seeing you, Ken, and seeing all yeah. your books and and miniatures behind you. And I'm just trying to work out some of the titles on on your bookshelf. Actually, I think is that <laughs> Napoleon's Napoleon's Marshals? Do I see there? Yeah. Oh um, yes. That's yeah, there. Yeah. That's yeah. 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 Napoleon's Marshals, Napoleon's campaigns in miniature will be up there. All the classics, uh, are, and uh, as you can see, that everything's slightly bowing under the weight. <laughs> well, a bit like me as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's I think it's an age related thing, mate. I yeah, exactly. Too much. <laughs> um, well, I've I've dug up a little bit of a bio on you, um, just so that we can give the uh, the audience a bit of a knowledge into your background before we talk start talking about books and stuff. And uh, it says here that you studied modern history at Exeter College, Oxford. Mm-hmm. So that, you've done all right then. You, you, you're not struggling with your writing or anything. <laughs> I can just about read and write. Yeah. And, and you know, I wish I could go back to university because I think in a way it's kind of wasted on the young because, you know, I, when I went, I was quite nervous about, you know, um, everything and not particularly confident and I didn't fully appreciate all the opportunities I had. But, you know, looking back, it, it was a, a, a wonderful time. The thing about Oxford is the terms are so short; they're eight weeks long. So, 
yeah. you actually spend longer at home than you do at, <laughs> at uni. <laughs> <laughs> well, Exeter is one of those classic colleges, isn't it? With the with the quadrangle in the middle, and isn't That's it next right. to the? Is it next to the library? The... Very, very good. Yeah, it's right in the heart of Oxford, opposite the um, Blackwell's Bookshop, and next to the Bodleian Library. And it's uh, the fourth Bodleian, oldest. That's so... the name. That's it. Founded in 1314, so the, the fourth oldest college. Wow. Well, I, I had a quick look down the uh, alumni of the college, <laughs> and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was one of them. So does that put a bit of pressure on you as a writer? <laughs> it does. In fact, he, um, he looked in the library at the college at all these obscure grammar books, like, you know, Finnish grammar, mm. and, and he was inspired by studying Finnish and other languages to, to make up his own, you know, uh, linguistic universe and 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 the world of um, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, he used runes and um, ancient languages, didn't he, to invent the the various languages within the uh, Lord of the Rings. That's right. Yeah, um, but I can't. Yeah. yeah, I can't compete with him at all. No. <laughs> so you're a long way, long way I'm, off I'm, in I'm, terms of sales. Yeah, he, he's kind of Premier League. I'm kind of very non-league. You know, down at the yeah. bottom somewhere. We're not expecting a um, three-film blockbuster series um, with uh, Mr. Jackson directing about about your recent book, then. Well, I hope so, and perhaps with with your help, you know, yeah, <laughs> Mentana exactly. the film. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be brilliant! The Return of the Zouaves. <laughs> uh, from there, you moved on to uh, let me get this right: the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. Now that That's sounds right. that sounds that sounds quite interesting. So, uh, what? Well, just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, my job is I'm a, I'm a Catholic priest. So, um, at the end of university, I decided to apply to to the church to be, to train for the priesthood, and I was very lucky to be sent to uh, the English College in Rome. And we were all sent out to one of the universities in in Rome, the Gregorian University a real shock after an English university because, because in England you, yeah. you kind of write, you write essays and you ask questions and um, you know, it, it's, it's a particular style in Rome. You just go to lectures, you do oral exams and the exam is really regurgitating what you've heard in lectures. So it, it was a bit of yeah. a shock um, to the system, but I loved living in, in Italy and it's one of the reasons I guess why I, I wrote this book. Yeah, Italy is Italy is a wonderful place and a, and a, fa- a favorite destination, holiday destination for the, for the Rileys. Is uh, is the is the college um sorry, in the university is it inside the Vatican City or is it is it in Rome? No, it, it's it, it's it? in um it's well the university is not that far from the Trevi Fountain. Um you know, the fountain where you, you throw a coin in and uh, mm. hope that you'll return to Rome one day. Um, and then the English College, which is where I lived, that's um, uh, not too far from the Vatican, just over the, the Tiber, um, near one of the main streets, uh, quite near the yeah. Piazza Farnese and then the, the Campo de Fiori. And yeah, I, I loved it. The problem was that we, we were given three weeks Italian lessons and then we had to start going to lectures on philosophy in Italian. So I was pretty good at ordering a pizza margarita and another yeah. litre of red wine but when it came to understanding <laughs> Plato and Socrates I didn't really have a chance uh, and we all kind of oh, looked at, at, at English notes that were circulated around from previous students and we were allowed to read you know English books but it was quite quite a struggle academically. Yeah I was going to talk I was going to talk to you about language is it was it done as you say it was all done in Italian then rather than English or Latin? 
Yeah, it used to be Latin up until the 1960s, but that was the, the those were the days when a lot of people learnt Latin at school, you know, and so they would have had some kind of knowledge of basic Latin. It, it was a kind of universal language, but now, I mean, to be honest, who speaks Italian apart from people in the church and, and people who live in Italy? Yeah. It's, it's not <laughs> it's not really something you learn at school necessarily, and it was quite a challenge. But luckily, the exams could be in English or one of the other major languages. So although the lectures were in Italian, you could do the oral exam in, in English, which which was a, a, a godsend. Um, the lecturers were kind of from every country as well. So, you know, you would have Spaniards speaking Italian, which really impossible. But we had a really good Australian lecturer who spoke Italian in a very strong Australian accent. So you could kind of understand <laughs> pretty much what he, what he was saying. Did he, did he still have that um, Australian... Um, inflection where they always go up at the end of a sentence yeah. like yeah. it's a question. Yeah. Yeah. So you think exactly. everything that they say is a question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well that's fantastic. I mean what a place to what a place to live, what a place to study. How, how long did you how long did you stay there for? So I was there for four years. Uh so that's wow. nineteen ninety seven to to two thousand and one. Um and yeah, yeah, some amazing moments and and you know opportunity to travel around it was in the days of lira as well so before the euro so wow. things were still really cheap and even yeah. though we were on a very very small student grant we could afford to eat out probably twice or three times a week because it was so cheap you know things have changed now what an amazing amazing time obviously you passed because you're you're you have a day job now I have a day job. Yeah, just about passed. <laughs> they let just me through. Just about passed. <laughs> <laughs> so, what what do you do? What do you do during the day, Nick? Well, I I wear a few different hats, but um, so I, I belong to the the diocese of Westminster. So you know, mm-hmm. the church is divided into dioceses, and um, so our, our kind of mother church is Westminster Cathedral, which some people might mm-hmm. know with a famous choir, and it basically covers London north of the Thames and the county of Hertfordshire. Um, and my parish, I'm a parish priest. I'm in a parish on the edge of London, Uxbridge. Mm-hmm. I guess best known to war gamers for the Earl of Uxbridge, who lost his leg yes. at um, Waterloo, and also known for our MP, whose name is Boris, uh, which some people might, ah, might have right. heard of. Ah. But it's on the edge of London, just north of Heathrow. Uh, it's kind of where London stops. But mm-hmm. I'm also the the archivist for the diocese, so I, I look after the the kind of the documents and the and people wanting to research the history of the diocese, um, and I also do a bit of teaching in the. Uh, training college for priests the the seminary fantastic archivist that's something that um popped out for me um is it uh, is it it's quite hard to explain because it's not it's not librarian is it it's it's different so can, can you kind of describe what the role of an archivist is yeah it's basically um well looking after uh and conserving and organizing historical manuscripts and artifacts and then making them accessible to researchers and it's really part of i suppose our organization's outreach as well you know uh, people mm. wanting to do family history perhaps they've never you know had anything to do with the church before but they come and they do some research and and hopefully have a, have a good experience um but the archive is it's amazingly rich it, it, it's uh, not in terms of money but in terms of uh, manuscripts you know goes back to the 16th century um, we've got 50 bound volumes of documents between 1500 and 1800 and, um, you know, some really amazing stuff in there. But I only go there one day a week. Um, but it's, yeah, 
Oh, so it's a nice day, nice day uh, to 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 because I've done I've done a little bit of family history in the past and and the kind of the official records, I can't, is it like early eighteen hundreds they go back to, and then you start to then rely more on parish records and stuff like that. Um, so is that the main area that you're involved in? Is that people coming and looking at what did Great Uncle George do in seventeen fifty that sort of thing? Yeah, we, we do have lots of uh, baptism registers. Uh, and mm. it, it's amazing, really, because we have you know, several hundred of them. And you know, in some cases, this is the only record of a particular individual, you know, some mm. poor Irish person who came to London in the, in the 1820s, you know, uh, perhaps they've left nothing behind apart from that one record. And they're probably forgotten by their families. So it's, so it's, it's a real mm. privilege you know, to, to handle this stuff. Um, so we do help family historians. The problem is, Ken, you know, they watch these documentaries on TV uh, and it yeah. makes it look so easy. You know, they think they're going to walk into the archive and I'll be there with my white gloves, you know, turning the page exactly <laughs> to the record they're looking for. Yeah. And as we all know, it, 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 there are lots of dead ends and, you know, it takes years to find perhaps one particular bit of information. Uh, but we also deal with doctoral students and, you know, people researching their, their school or their parish. Um, mm. and academics all sorts. Has there been a drive has there been a drive to digitize your records? Is that something that, that you've looked at? Yeah, it's it's you know, obviously an expensive process, but we have mm. worked with uh one of the online genealogy companies and they've digitized a lot of our baptism records. So that mm. makes it easier for the for the user and um makes it easier for us as well. That's a nice little introduction to to your background. You you've done um quite a few other books, haven't you, before this one? Um and um they have thing gripping titles like um William Lockhart, First Fruits of the Oxford Movement. Yeah, is that, I think I can see it on the shelf behind you, I think, Ken. Yeah. <laughs> signed copy, signed copy. Yeah. St. Saint, Saint John Southworth, the Paris priest of Westminster. Um, yeah. So obviously these, these were bought your fourth or fifth Ferrari, I take it. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, perhaps, perhaps, a, perhaps a baguette or something. Uh, but yeah, yeah it's um, they're, they're kind of really a, a, a labour of love and... Mm. Um, it's partly because I'm I'm archivist and I I have kind of uh, access to all these records and I suppose I see myself partly as a, as a popularizer of obscure history you know so so these aren't particularly um, academic books full of footnotes it's more trying to popularize and and brings people's attention some some amazing stories uh, from the past. Can you look back in in time and and find a, a moment or a, a, an event that got you interested in writing that gave you the enthusiasm to write and to communicate in the way that you do through these books? Well, I can certainly remember the moment I got into history, which was mm. at the age of four. And I went to wow. the dentist in Ealing in West London. And there was, for some reason, there was a big picture of King Charles II in the waiting room. And even though this was the 1970s, I said to my mum, why does, does that man have long hair? And I kind of just, I just loved the look, the kind of cavalier, you know, yeah. restoration look. And I just began asking questions and, and looking into kings and queens. So that's how I got into history. In terms of books, I mean, I, I was brought up in a in a house full of books and I, I love reading and I just wanted to kind of to write and I discovered I could communicate fairly well by writing. Um, mm. So I kind of, I, I got into it. 
we'll, we'll talk more about about the book in um, in in the coming sections of the, of the podcast. But I, one thing that I did notice, and I, I did a video review of the book. I, I think you mm, saw it. Actually, I saw you? that. Yeah. It's brilliant. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, and um, kind of one of the things that that got me about your your book was your style of writing and the prologue to the book. You're setting a picture. It's um, it's like it's almost like a a film script. You know the notes that you would have. Um, was that is that a deliberate style of writing? Are you trying to not be popularist? I don't want to sort of denigrate what you what you're doing. Um, but are you trying to reach out to more than the academic reader? Yeah, I think especially in the prologue. I mean, so many, especially military history books, you know, almost the first sentence of the first page is, you know, the 12th Corps were, were on the west, on the left <laughs> flank of such and such army. There's no real, you know, you're right in there and it's quite hard to read. Um, and I think yeah. setting the scene in a in a more vivid and pictorial way um, and bringing the, the reader in, uh, especially with this book, which is, you know, I am the first to confess is really, really niche. Um, and you know, when I first mentioned it to friends, you know, they they, they often would laugh, uh, and you know, who's going to read that? So you have to make it kind of attractive, and and you know, and it, it is a drama. It is a really dramatic story. So I wanted to kind of. You can go back to those friends now, Nick, and say I have been <laughs> on an award-winning podcast as a result of this book. <laughs> so up yours. So there, exactly. <laughs> so, so there. <laughs> How many award-winning podcasts have you been on? It's it's all there. It's all there. Well, that's that's brilliant. Thank you very much for that introduction, Nick. It just give everyone, uh, the listeners, a little bit of a, a feel for your background. Um, uh, before we move on and we we talk about the book in in some detail, um, we did mention in the introduction that uh, you had a little bit of a a dabble into wargaming. So this is a wargaming podcast. Um, so. Uh, what what are you prepared to uh, fess up to in that in that way, Nick? <laughs> well, I mean, it, as with so many war gamers, I guess it, it began with you know the, the soldiers in the toy shop down the road. I don't yeah. think toy shops have soldiers anymore, do they? It's all kind of not very PC. Um, but you know, my local toy shop in Ealing had lots of Britain soldiers, so I started yeah. with the, you know, the knights and castles. But then it, I was obviously drawn to the airfix. And my cousin Chris, who lived in Worthing, he had a, a bedroom full of tanks uh, and Napoleonic soldiers, airfix and American Civil War, Zulu War, you know, World War Two, huge collection. And he would do solo war games on a big bit of wood on his floor. And he, and he would record the details of all these battles in an exercise book and make up fictitious names. Uh, so I kind of he was a few years older than me. I, I kind of followed his example. Um, he had a very, very simple set of wargaming rules, which I, I guess he took from some airfix book or what was it? Was it Donald Donald Featherstone? Was that the? Yeah, it was either Don kind of the great. Was one Don, of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember one of the rules was you know if if you rolled the dice and you were able to fire the cannon, you you got a circular bit of paper and you just put it over uh, some oh, troops and you remove school. those figures That's, and put them at the yeah. side. So you know, really, really kind of basic, um, basic stuff. Um, it kind of progressed from there. And I remember being quite ill at one point and my dad bought me a copy of War Games Illustrated. And wow. uh, I kind of read that in bed, got really into it and realized all, all the kind of miniatures that were that were around. Mm -hmm. um, and I dragged my dad to Salute uh, 1990 in Kensington wow. Town Hall. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was absolutely 
uh, amazing to see the, the world of wargaming. But my, my three main problems really were, um, firstly, none of my friends were interested mm-hmm. in, in wargaming. It wasn't very cool at my school. Yeah. Secondly, I was a rubbish painter, not like you. You know, um, I, 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 I guess I just didn't know what to do and I didn't have the money to spend on paints. And I kind of was just having a, a load of metal figures on the board when it was, was not really very attractive. Mm-hmm. And thirdly, I couldn't decide what period to focus on because I wanted yeah. to war game every period. Uh, I have a kind of butterfly historical mind like that. I, I kind of want to do everything. But you'd be pleased to know, Ken, that the two periods I, I was interested in, uh, one of them was the Lange Connects, the Italian wars, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the other one was uh, the First World War. My, my granddad, who I remember very well, he, he was a survivor of the Battle of the Somme. And yeah. I remember talking to him about it and he met his wife, my grandmother, at the end of the war. She, she was a Belgian. He was an English soldier. So I, I always thought World War One was part of my family narrative. So I wanted to kind of explore that and, and, and model it. The problem is, of course, wargaming World War One. if you you'd basically advance over the trench and that's the end of the game. <laughs> so it, it's sort of, you know, at that stage, it was a little bit, um, a little bit strange. Yeah, it's uh, it's come a long way. Um, the World War One uh, war game, and it's something we've talked about on the podcast before. And a good friend of mine, Alex uh, Sutherland, is a World War One historian. And there's a bit of a revisionist movement um, in relation to World War One and light infantry tactics and that sort of stuff now. So that's something that's very um, in the fore uh, of World War One. Uh, historians at the moment so uh, that's turned turned a little bit and i had relatives who fought in the mesopotamia campaign out uh you know up and down the river, river tigris towards baghdad and uh jerusalem etc so uh it's 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 becoming a period of interest again at the moment which is which is nice to see it d- didn't go very far but you've got an idea of what wargaming is about which is great yeah, so I, I know what wargaming is basically about, and I would love to return to it. And I, I actually have a big church hall, you know, next to my house. So if there's anybody in the Uxbridge area that wants to, you know, get to use it and talk about using it, then yeah, do come and see me. Um, there's lots of tables oh. there. We could have we could have a, a, a REIT big wargame. Oh, brilliant! I, I I think I know a few people who live near you, um, so that, that might be that might be doable. Um, and as you now, as you now, you don't know this yet, Nick, but you are now the official advisor to my Battle of Mentana game. Fantastic! Um, you, you will uh, <laughs> hopefully. If I, I'll definitely try and bring that down to down south, uh, past Nottingham, uh, to a show. So I'll make sure you know that it's there and, and we can meet up. Well, that's a fantastic first section. Um, we're going to take a short break now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and we're going to be back and we're going to start talking about Nick's book. Well, that was a fantastic uh, introduction with Nick there, and we got a little bit of a taste of his uh, life and his wargaming experience. Um, <laughs> but we're here to talk about his book, and... Um, his book is called Victorian Crusaders, British and Irish Volunteers in the Papal Army, 1860 to uh, 70. And um, I was very excited when I saw this because uh, it is uh, a project that I'm working on at the moment. Regular listeners will know that I'm building up both forces uh, for the Battle of Mentana in 1867. 
sources of information in the English language are relatively scarce. Um, so I saw this book coming out and bang, I've got to have a copy of this. I've got to have a copy of this. Uh, so then, Nick, what you've done a few books um, based around your day job. Um, so where, where, what was the idea? What was the motivation to switch to military history? Well, it's really the kind of the marriage of two of my passions, you know, church history, mm. which is what, what I, I've done up until now, but also that interest in military history, which partly led to my dabble in wargaming as a, as a teenager. Um, and I, I first came across this subject when I was living in Rome uh, mm. and at the back of the chapel of the English college, there's a, a cylindrical monument to Julian Watts Russell, who was uh, one of two members of the Zouaves, um, English members of the Zouaves, to be killed in action. Um, and I just remember reading about him and kind of seeing a, a picture of a Zouave and seeing their very glamorous and slightly ridiculous uh, uniform, you know, baggy <laughs> trousers and, um, you know, not really what you perhaps expect in, in Italy in the 1860s. Uh, and I just kind of wanted to know more. And I, I put it at the back of my mind. It was something I, I wanted to to look into more. And I kind of assumed that there wasn't really much uh, archival material um, or documentation. You know, perhaps it might be an article mm. or something, but I didn't really think initially of a book. And then Osprey produced their Men at Arms book about the wars of the Italian unification and the second yeah. volume covered the Papal States. And that kind of reminded me about that, that idea I had. And I thought, well, perhaps I, I could look a, a bit more into it. Um, and thank God, Ken, for uh, <laughs> Google Books and digital 19th century newspapers, because that is where I got so much uh, of the information. You know, if I'd been trawling around Italian libraries or whatever, it would have it would have taken taken about thirty or forty years, but that, that really kind of speeded up the the, the whole uh, process. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know whether you'd uh, tapped up some of your friends in the um, in the Gregorian University to see if they've got any uh, bits of information for you. Um, you had the germ of the idea then. It, it obviously been a seed that had been planted there a number of years beforehand. Did you? write the book and search a publisher or did you go to the publisher with an idea and and and, and go from there yeah i began gathering together uh, information so, so i got all the key books in the english language mm. um then i kind of discovered the joys of google translate and you know that that allows you to include a very impressive multilingual bibliography uh, which makes people think that you're fluent in 50 languages but actually <laughs> it's uh, it's all thanks to google translate um and once I thought I had enough material, I produced, uh, I, I approached Helion um, and they very kindly said, yes, they'd, they'd be interested to make it part of the From Musket to Maxim uh, series. And then, of course, lockdown happened. And um, despite its challenges and all the awful situations we found ourselves in and the, and the constant changes of regulations, it, it did give me at least a bit of time just to work on this you know uh, mm. I, I don't think i could could work on it so easily at the moment given everything that's going on in in, in my day job but yeah it had a bit of space to kind of really concentrate on it brilliant and you've obtained um quite a number of original photographs as far as i can tell for the book um yeah. how did you how did you come across those two main sources um one is uh, ebay uh i would ah, brilliant kind of eBay, almost on a daily 
uh, basis, I would put in, you know, Zouave Pontifical or, or Battalion of St. Patrick or Garibaldi or whatever and see what came up. It's not the cheapest way of getting images, but at least I knew there was no copyright issues if I owned it and scanned it and, yeah. you know, and, and sent it in. Lots of nice engravings from, you know, the Illustrated London News and, and other contemporary uh, journals. So that was one source. And I've got a little, little collection actually beside me of um, kind of Zouaviana, you know, a few medals and <laughs> and um, yeah. original photographs and things I found on on eBay. But the second source, which was amazing, really, was ancestry and find my past and 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 similar okay. genealogical yeah. um, uh, sites because I, I would type in the names of various well-known Zouaves that I I had discovered, English ones, and in some cases I tracked down their descendants. Most of them didn't know anything about. The fact that their great 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 grandfather was a zouave. In fact, they, they probably thought I was some nutter, you know, um, <laughs> kind of stalking them uh, and using these yeah. bizarre words. But one or two of them were, were very aware of their family story. And one or two of them had amazing photos, which they very kindly shared with me. Um, and one in particular was a, a lady who lived in Australia uh, and she was a descendant of uh, the Collingridge brothers. Uh, one of whom was actually killed in action in, in 1867. And she had an amazing uh, photo album of original photos that had never you know, been published before. So I, I was really lucky in, in tracking those down. Yeah, because it's a fun, it's a, uh, outside of our immediate sphere of, of conversation, it's, it's that change in history, isn't it, where we're starting to go from um, art and engraving as a method of recording images to photographs um and you're able to I, what i found very interesting about the book is i'm actually looking at this guy not somebody's interpretation of them so it's quite a an exciting period of history for that reason as well and although they you know when you look at those photos it really seems like another age you know a completely different era many of these veterans only died in the 1920s and, and 30s so it's actually you know people still alive would have met um you know those who fought in the in these campaigns in the 1860s yeah it's a, it's an amazing when you think about things in in that way that you know pe there are people alive today who've spoken to people's who waves it's uh, yeah it's, it's like my, my dad my dad uh who was 50 years older than me but he once he said he met a man who remembered his grandfather who had fought at Trafalgar. So that's amazing, isn't it? Quite So he must have met this guy in the sort of 1950s. He must have already been an old man. And he remembered as a child his granddad who had been at Trafalgar with Nelson. So the past yeah. is not that far away. No, that that's. I mean, I've spoken to people on the podcast before who, uh, who've met like Douglas Bader when they were a child oh. on an RAF base, yeah. and and Johnny Frost from Arnhem, and, and that as, yeah. as through yeah. uh, through people. It's just I. This this is the reason why I love history, uh, is those connections, those personal connections. That's uh, that's lovely to hear that background. So we'll move on to the book itself now, Nick, and um, this this isn't. Um, a doctoral viva or anything like that. I'm, I'm going to ask you some. I'm going to have to ask you some questions. On, of course, of course. So hopefully you've got a good memory. Hopefully, hopefully you've got a good memory. <laughs> so um, myself included, up until 
fairly recently, and I would consider myself a reasonable student of history. Um, because we're quite UK-centric um, and we don't tend to look at history outside of the UK, or if there isn't any UK involvement, we tend to go, I'm not interested in that. Um, so today we think of Italy as a country. We, um, we, we're aware of the Vatican City and the Pope, etc. Um, but in 1860, 1850s, things were very different, weren't they, Nick? So um, just tell us, or just give us a, a, a brief pressy of what Italy was like at that time. It wasn't even Italy, was it? Um, and how the various states fitted in with each other at that moment in time. Yeah, so as you say, Italy really up until the mid-19th century was just a, a geographical expression, I suppose a bit like the way we talk about Scandinavia um, today, um, but it was actually made up of many different states. Uh, so you had the kingdom of the two Sicilies in the south, uh, you had the papal states stretched across the centre of Italy, uh, you had the kingdom of uh, Piedmont, Sardinia uh, in the north west corner which was in many ways the, the kind of key player uh, in our story um and then a number of kind of smaller units uh, the kingdom of lombardy and venezia which was under austrian domination uh, duchies in tuscany and modena uh, and of course little san marino um which somehow survived uh, yeah, everything it kept his head death <laughs> And, and it's funny because when you look at a map of Europe, I mean, the, the borders of Italy are in some ways the most obvious, aren't they? They're very clearly yeah. defined. But but Italy was a really divided uh, peninsula, uh, even just on the geographical level. You know, the mountains going down the middle, um, often the easiest way to travel from one part to another was by river or by sea. Um, lots of different dialects spoken around the place. In fact, it, it was estimated that I think about 2.5% of the Italian population in 1860 spoke what we would call a modern Italian. You know, there were so many other dialects uh, uh, going on. But there was also that sense of Italianness, and there was a call in some quarters for for unity. I, I think in many ways, though, it was more about getting rid of foreign domination, uh, getting rid of the Austrians especially, uh, rather than necessarily having one country called called Italy. Mm. It's an extremely complicated period of history and I think um, it will be impossible to summarise <laughs> in a couple of minutes um, but I think this is something that is a common thread throughout the uh, throughout Italian history um, up until the point of unification. Um, if you look at my other favourite period, the Italian Wars and, and uh, Machiavelli and, and it's so hard to keep you keep track of who's on whose side during the Italian wars. So many people who will listen to this will be familiar with um, the Borgias and uh, Julius II, the warrior Pope. And um, at that time, the papal States was, was a reasonable military force, wasn't it? It was um, mostly through money and influence. Um, but how, how are you able to say how the papal states had, had developed from that period up to where we're looking at now, the 1860s? Yeah, well, the, the papal states, it kind of goes back to the, the 8th century. Um, and and by certainly the 16th century, it was a 
most of central Italy, not including uh, Tuscany, but it stretched as far north as kind of Bologna and Ravenna, and it went you know far south of Rome to, to not that far really from from Naples. Um, so it was a, a huge um, territory really, uh, stretching from from sea to sea, and the Pope was both temporal sovereign as well as spiritual leader. Um, and actually, before the French Revolution, that wasn't particularly unusual. There were various uh, prince archbishops, you know, like parts of the Holy Roman Emperor, Empire were ruled by bishops or archbishops or, or abbots. Um, although after the French Revolution, the, the Pope was really the only one left. Um, but it's really hard for us to kind of understand that because we're so used to the Pope as this spiritual figurehead, um, a global kind of guru. Um, we don't really think of him as having a, a, an army and a navy and collecting taxes and passing laws um, and all that sort of thing. I think it would be a big surprise and on the news if Pope Francis got himself dressed up as Julius II and started running around the streets of uh, Rome on a, on, a, on a white charger. I think that would uh, definitely make the headlines. Definitely. And I, it would certainly be very much against Pope Francis's kind of persona. Um, <laughs> even, even though, of course, most times that you see the Pope, you've got the Swiss guards, you know, standing on either side yeah. of him, which is a reminder of that, that, that kind of military uh, tradition. But what you said about the Italian wars is interesting because Italy has for centuries been the kind of playground of Europe, hasn't it? And especially uh, France and either the Holy Roman Empire or, or more recently Austria kind of fighting each other for influence in that, in that peninsula. And that was still very much the case in the 19th century, just as it was in the, in the 16th. So we've got, um, we've got in the, the 1860s, we've got this... Uh, the Risorgimento, we've got this drive for Italian unification and we've got characters like Garibaldi and um, Di Cavoro. Di Cavoro? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, yeah, my, yeah. Italian, my Italian is appalling. So, um, But we've got, we've got these characters who are pushing for that. Um, so how does that develop? It develops to a state, does, to a point, doesn't it, where the papal states are more or less left on their own? That's right. I mean, it's it, it's partly influenced by uh, Napoleon because Napoleon, as we all know, invades Italy and kind of redraws lots of boundaries and introduces common laws uh, and is even a kingdom of Italy in the northern part of mm. of the peninsula. And actually, the papal states are suppressed um, twice uh, in 1798, I think, Pius the Sixth. Household name, name I know for most of your listeners. Uh, Pius VI was was captured and <laughs> and and taken away, uh, and he, he died in captivity. And uh, the republic was declared in Rome. And then Pius VII, his successor, was also uh, imprisoned by Napoleon, uh, and uh, Rome became a, a very important city in the Napoleonic Empire. Um, so the, the kind of popes in the later in the mid nineteenth century were very much aware of what had happened under Napoleon. Uh, they knew that secular rulers couldn't completely be trusted, um, and they were very much insistent on the importance of their independence, that the papal states were necessary to the Pope's authority and his position as a spiritual leader. Yeah. So, as you say, the papal states are left alone. You know, it, it, mm. the Kingdom of Italy is eventually proclaimed in 1861, and the papal states are one of the last bastions of, of independence. My reading is extremely complicated, but there's lots of people eyeing up bits of the papal states. Um, they see 
a weakness um, and the Papal States are um, friendly with France, um, which which helps in terms of uh, French military support as well. Um, so the book itself, you have that introduction and then you start to look at a battalion called the St. Patrick's Battalion. Um, and there, was this 1860? It was started... 1860. Yeah, so I, originally I was going to just write about the papal zouaves, who mm. you know really come into into the centre of the drama in the in the late eighteen sixties. But then I realised really you have to start with the eighteen sixty campaign and this unique battalion called the Battalion of Saint Patrick. Um, so that was founded in in eighteen sixty. It really existed for just a few months. But to cut a long story short, uh, the Pope feels threatened uh, by Piedmont, especially. Um, this is just after the 1859 war uh, and foreign volunteers rush to Rome to support the Pope and, and augment the military support they, they already have. And that's why I call the book Victorian Crusaders, because there are sort of various uh, similarities with the, with the medieval crusading movement. Um, not exactly. I mean, there were quite a few differences, but it was the same sort of spirit. We need to defend our faith. We need to defend our cause against the the kind of the, the secular forces um, uh, against the church, you know. So that's why all these very ordinary uh, Irishmen and people from other countries went to Rome uh, to join various units and the Irish joined mm. the battalion of St. Patrick. So how did, how did the call go out? Do, uh, you know, how did Liam O'Reilly in church in Cork um waiting you know he's 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 hearing the the sunday service um how does he find out because we've got no internet we've got no yep. uh, radio we've got no television how does the the message get out to go what you know it must seem at that time the other the other side of the world and recruitment is very uh, discreet, actually. I mean, there are no big posters of Pius IX pointing his finger at you saying, you know, the Pope needs you. <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't kind of like that. Uh, it was partly through sermons. It would have been through uh, newspaper articles. In fact, you know, the, the, the fact that you have cheap newspapers uh, and you know, every locality has uh, a, a paper reporting not just you know, local news, but what's going on in Europe, uh, that really was, was key. Um, mm. and uh, there were petitions signed, sent to the Pope to, to support him, and collections made uh, to send money over. So it was all part of this big um, kind of popular mobilization of, of, of the faithful to support mm. the Pope. But the bishops themselves in Ireland were actually a little bit ambiguous. Some were, were very clear supporters, um, but some were actually you know very reluctant to um, especially risk the uh, displeasure of the government, you know, uh, is not really what the British government wants to hear. That that people are going off to Rome uh, to join the Pope's army, and there was lots yeah. of you know anti-Catholic feeling as well. And this sort of thing was was only going to feed it. So at the at the time, is this is this solely an Irish Catholic thing, or is is uh, are people going from the UK, etc.? They're going from other areas, or is it? just Ireland that are sending people to the St. Patrick's Battalion. Yeah, it's it's really uh, the Irish kind of moment. Uh, not many from England, one or two, because obviously a lot of Catholics in England are Irish. So it's 
the boundaries are a bit blurred sometimes, but it, it's very much an Irish uh, effort. And England's sort of a little bit more uh, reluctant. I guess one of the reasons for that is that the Resurgimento was hugely popular in England. You know, Garibaldi was one of the great celebrities of the Victorian age. And many people had his statue on their mantelpieces and um, you know, ate his biscuits. Uh, and when he, when he came to London in 1864, hundreds of thousands of people uh, greeted him. So, mm. you know, it was really going against popular fashion and to, to, to kind of be against the Resurgimento. So perhaps the English were a little bit more reluctant to make that rather bold move. Yeah. Um, we'll talk in a little bit more detail about um, motivation when we talk about the papal waves, but I just wanted to cover it a little bit here as well in that Ireland at the time will be quite a rural population. Uh, farming will be uh, one of the main methods of income. So to send little Liam um 18 year old big burly lad who would help massively with harvest and stuff like that away to rome to fight is a big um it's a big commitment both financially and in terms of productivity was there a, was there a, a pay element involved did did the saint patrick's battalion pay well was that a or was everything religious well, not not everything was religious because I, I I think there's there's also the desire for adventure and travel and mm. you know new opportunities and perhaps in some ways um, I think one of the motivations for the Irish battalion was you know it's a way of fighting England you know, if England is so much in favour of Italian unification well we're fighting against that by by joining the Pope's army and and who knows some of the skills we learn in in the army may actually serve our our calls back home, you know, in, in future years. Um, but pay was not good. Pay was absolutely atrocious. And when they oh. got over to, to Italy, um, there were all sorts of arguments about salary and conditions and diet uh, and indeed the uniform, uh, because there was a very glamorous green and yellow uniform with baggy trousers, which seems to be a common theme in our discussions. Yeah. I mean, even the Lange Connect said baggy trousers. Uh, <laughs> but they were not ready for the vast majority of the Irish recruits and they had to wear kind of ill-fitting uniforms uh, instead, uh, just taken from the stores. So there was that kind of lack of identity when, when they kind of got over there, not having a uniform. Mm. So there was a lot of um, enthusiasm prior to going, but I got the feeling from your book that there was this feeling of being let down a little bit when they arrived. Yeah, I think there was, um, and not really understanding what they were getting involved in. And I think the Italians sometimes didn't really know who these guys were. Um, and I think there was one quote: somebody said, "What? What's an Irishman?" And they and they and the guys, the Italian said, "I think he's some kind of Dutchman, because some Irlandese sounds very similar to Olandese in, in Italian." Yeah, yeah. So they they just they had yeah. no idea, you know, who these 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 people were. Yeah, well, with the surname of, of uh, Riley, there's there's a bit of Irish kicking around in my background, and um, we we do love a good fight, especially after a few <laughs> drinks. Um, so I can see see that being a motivational factor as well. Um, so so did all the uh, soldiers, potential soldiers, go across 
in one lot or did they dribble through in twos and threes? How did they get to Rome? I mean, there was a bit of organisation in Ireland, you know, the, the collections and committees formed to, to send them on their way. And sometimes there were, you know, huge crowds um, waving them off or, or on the steamer, you know, um, off to or Liverpool or, 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 or France. But there were different routes that they took. Sometimes they went to um, Austria uh, for a bit of training first. Sometimes they went straight to, uh, to Italy. Um, but it was, yeah, dribs and drabs and not much organisation. And the officer who was in charge of the battalion was, of course, your namesake, uh, Miles O'Reilly. O'Reilly, um, yeah. And is he a relation, no relation. of yours? No, no relation that I'm aware of. I think, I think my, my, my branch of the family was um, already in Cheshire at that point. Uh, we'd come over from Ireland earlier than that. But he arrived late uh, and it took him time to kind of gather together all these recruits from different parts of Ireland and to try and provide some sort of basic uh, training. And where where were they based? Did they have a central barracks? Uh, they were Again, they were split, and that was one of the, the kind of big criticisms, that, that they went off to Italy, proud to be Irishmen, you know, uh, mm. gathered together to defend the Pope, um, but their various companies were split. Uh, some were in Ancona, um, others in, in Spoleto and in Perugia, uh, some in, in Rome itself. So they never actually fought together um, as, a, as a unit. Um, but they did fight, you know, I mean, before they could do very much training, the, the Piedmontese actually invaded the Papal States and they suddenly found themselves in, in various actions. Uh, and I mean, from a war gaming point of view, it's a little bit limited. I mean, there aren't that many battles uh, mm. or, 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 or campaigns, but it's basically a, a kind of a siege, if that's not too grand a word, of Perugia and Spoleto, where the, the garrison mm. includes uh, Irish soldiers from the battalion. Um, and then there's uh, a big battle at Castle Vidardo, uh, and then there's a, a, a slightly bigger siege in Ancona, which was one of the main uh, papal ports. Hmm. I'm glad you said um, Castle Fidardo because I, I wouldn't have been miles <laughs> off with my my pronunciation pronunciation of that. Um, but as you say, they, they never fought as a unit, did they? They were split, no, uh, no. put out in little companies here and there. And I think was it was there just one or two companies at Castle Fidardo? Castle Fidardo. I think there was. It was a poss possibly not even a company. It was a sort of. Uh, almost half a company f uh, protecting some of the artillery and the and the wagons, um, ammunition wagons, um, and we don't even know the names of many of those who fought at uh, Castle Fidardo. Yeah, it's um, it, it's a. It, if I remember correctly, I, this, so there's a great map in your book, and there's um, mm. uh, in the appendices there's some army lists, and the, there's yeah. about five or six thousand on each side. Um, but it was part of a larger thing wasn't it the Piedmontese army was much larger than what actually fought in against the papal soldiers that's right at, at Castle Fidardo it's just really one flank of the Piedmontese army that's involved in in mm. uh, well resisting the the, the the papal troops um they're trying to make a getaway to go to Ancona to join the rest of the papal army there um but they're sort of waylaid by the Piedmontese and they try to attack but it, it all goes a bit wrong um and yeah, yeah they they kind of <laughs> retreat in in tatters um but you know that the commander of the pontifical army was actually a very well-known um french general general lamoricier who had won mm. fame in algeria um and actually was very much involved in the formation of the french zouaves which is i guess why the, the zouaves were founded in the papal army um but a very you know very 
talented uh, general uh, as well as a, a devout Catholic. Um, but he, he sort of wasn't quite on the ball uh, at Castle Fadade. <laughs> so where 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 does that action with the Piedmontese? Where does that leave the papal states um, at, at the end of this this very short period where the Saint Patrick's Battalion is in, in existence? Um, just to give us a nice bookend for for this sec this part of the of the podcast, where are we now? With the Papal States, what situation are they in? So that the Piedmontese uh, invade a large part of the Papal States. They, they, they defeat the Papal army. And basically the Pope loses about two thirds of his territory. So all that is left of the Papal States is the area around Rome. So I guess we would call it Lazio um, today. Um, and it's, all, it's also part of a much bigger uh, thing going on because Garibaldi, remember, in 1860 is uh, pushing through Sicily and the kingdom of naples is slightly miraculously defeated um and mm. he kind of meet he kind of meets the piedmontese who've just swept through the papal states and that's kind of where where the kingdom of italy is 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 yeah, really uh, consolidated and and proclaimed um as a result and it's worth mentioning actually ken that you know there were quite a few englishmen fighting with garibaldi uh in 1860 yeah. so you so you got the irish fighting with the pope and you got uh, various uh, units fighting with with Garibaldi, although officially they were described as as excursionists uh, with a particular ah, interest ah. in the in the volcanic activity of Mount Etna in uh, Sicily, because uh, it was against the law technically to to join the foreign yes, army. Yes, the uh, for the foreign uh, I can't remember what it's called the foreign foreign uh, enlistment army act, act. Or enlistment yeah. act. That's it. Yeah. yeah, which is still around today and is still um, yeah. uh, a, a a question concern in a number of places yeah. today um and um garibaldi's a very uh, we, there's no time for us to go into garibaldi during this podcast he's a very interesting character and um reading his history has, has opened my eyes to a lot of things and i didn't realize things like the the red shirt of nottingham forest is all down to garibaldi and his visit to the uk uh and he was kind of a what a media superstar of the day, wasn't he? <laughs> Everywhere he went. And a kind of a complete one-off, you know, whatever you think of him, he, there's not many people like Garibaldi in history, you know, uh, a kind of guerrilla um, freelance freedom fighter who switches sides. I mean, as we'll perhaps discuss later, you know, he actually fights alongside some of the former papal zouaves in the Franco-Prussian war. So having, having yeah. been against each other for so long, they're actually, you know, fighting on the same side um, after the defeat of Napoleon III. Um, and he popularizes red as the color of revolution because uh, that's what he wore in Latin America during his campaigns there. So, yeah, a, a really remarkable figure um, and not really interested in power himself. He just wanted no. to fight, fight for the cause. He always seemed to retreat to a little farmhouse with very mm, little... On the island, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and having you know any anybody who reads anything about Garibaldi, and if you haven't, I would suggest that you do just for interest. Um, if you're not into the period, read a biography of Garibaldi, and um, I guarantee you, within four chapters, you will be saying, "How the hell is this guy still alive?" And then you realise that he's still in South America and he's not even come across to Italy and been involved in 
four or five yeah. different yeah. wars over in Italy. So an, an amazing, an amazing mm. um, guy. We've got a, an update on where we are historically. Um, and then the St. Patrick's Battalion kind of drifts away, doesn't it? It, it it's disbanded. And um, so what, how did that happen? What was the end of the campaign? The papal army is in disarray. Most of the Irish guys go home. There is a small remnant that stays on in Rome and they call themselves the company of St. Patrick. And that lingers on until about 1862-63. And some of them do join the Zouaves, but most of them return home. And actually a lot of them, or not a lot, but some, uh, get involved in the American Civil War. Um, you know, they're, they're sort of find that a rather attractive proposition. Yeah, I read that in your in, in the book and I thought, wow, that, that's quite interesting because they, they there was a little bit of a celebrity thing around them and the papal waves, wasn't there? Um, and there was tours of America and, and what have you. Um, so I suppose, you know, if your trade was a soldier um, in 1860, then. America's a decent place to go, isn't it? For to play yeah, and trade. I guess a lot of Irishmen would have siblings or cousins who are in America anyway. So they're kind of it's part of the yeah. Irish um, diaspora. Uh, and one of my favourite former members of the battalion was uh, Miles Keogh, who ended up fighting at Little Bighorn with General yes. Custer. He, he yeah. and he was massacred, of course. But his horse, I think, was the only survivor of um, that battle. And Sitting Bull, the, uh, the 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 chief, he found the Castle Fidardo medal on Miles Keogh's body, and he began wearing it himself as a kind of lucky talisman. Wow, what a story! What a story! That's amazing. Um, just before we end on the Saint Patrick's Battalion, you mentioned the uniform, and uh, this is one of the things that got me deeply into this period uh, by accident because I'd seen the uniform. And um, it's one of those units that, like the Polish winged hussars, that many, many wargamers want to own, but never really have a reason for having them. So um, for those of you who don't know, the uniform is uh, depicted as being quite a bright green with lots of yellow piping. We've got the baggy trousers. We've got the zouave piping uh on the trousers themselves and on the jacket and then they have these wonderful uh sort of puffed up sleeves that are also piped yellow um and it, it does look absolutely amazing and i i have painted uh completely inaccurately uh, an entire unit of them uh just like that um are you aware of any examples of this uniform still in existence I don't think I am actually. Um, mm. um, I, I haven't become across any. No, but I wonder whether in some attic somewhere in 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 Ireland yeah. there might be a you know one mouldering away. Um, even getting images of them or even photos of members wearing the the, the uniform, I've only seen one or two. Um, really hard to, to to find. Yeah, because I think you said earlier on, didn't you, that it, the um, the distribution of that uniform was. Mm sparse to say the least and i don't think everyone got got no did they and i think some of the richer members yeah because there were some middle class um members of the battalion and officers they actually just went to a tailor and said can you make one of these uniforms please you know yeah uh, (laughs) um this is the only way to get one it's one of those go back in time when you, you um the middle class 
might not have anything to do. Oh, darling, I'm just, I'm just off to Rome to fight for the Pope. Yes. Is that okay? Oh, yes. I'll see you in a few months. Brilliant. I'm just off to the tailors to get my union. Oh, you look lovely, darling. You look lovely. Uh, send, send, send me some coffee. <laughs> so, well, that's a, that's a great chat there, Nick, on um, St. Patrick's Battalion. Thank you very much for that. Uh, we'll take another short break now, and we'll come back and we'll talk about the Papal Zouaves. Okay, we are now going to uh, have a chat about the Pontifical Zouaves, uh, Zouaves, however you uh, want to pronounce it, and uh, by now you'll know that Yorkshire Gamer isn't a source of uh, pronunciation for any language, including English. Um, well, I think, so... I think Zouave is the Yorkshire way of saying it, isn't it? Is it? Excellent, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I need to find out if there was any pontifical zouaves from Yorkshire, don't I? That would be uh, that would be an even more niche book than the, 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 this one. Yeah, well, the, the, there are there are a few actually. Wow, brilliant, brilliant! I'm looking forward. To, I'll, I'll I'll dig them out. We've talked about the Saint Patrick's Battalion lasted a very short space of time. The papal zouaves, um, the pontifical zouaves, they come out of a unit or I don't know how big it was actually um from around that time the Franco-Belgian Tyrolers yes um so just explain to people then how the papal zouaves zouaves came about so you're absolutely right the the Franco-Belgian Tyrolers um I think that's that's the London way of pronouncing it anyway um that was also one of the units formed in 1860 and mm. uh, it was made up of French and Belgians and a large number of very wealthy um, kind of aristocratic Catholics from those countries. Um, and they had a prominent role in the Battle of Castle Fidardo. But after the defeat of 1860, you know, the papal army is in tatters um, and Monsignor Marode, who was a, a priest in charge of the uh, kind of papal army, from a kind of admin's point of view, he uh, was instrumental in forming this new unit, the, the Pontifical Zouaves. Uh, and the commander of the papal army, General Lamoricier, he had been involved with the, the French Zouaves. That, that's where the Zouaves came from. You know, they, they were originally Algerian warriors, um, well known for their um, military skill and their courage. Um, and when the French colonized Algeria, they kind of rather like this idea of the Zouave, and it became a unit in the French army. And it gradually became a unit which was comprised entirely of Frenchmen wearing kind of these exotic uniforms. And they were, you know, one of the kind of glamorous military units of the mid-19th century. Every army wants to have a unit of Zouaves. Uh, and as you know, I'm sure the, in, during the American Civil War, there are lots of units mm. of Zouaves in fact, one journalist wrote, it's raiding Zouaves. You know, there was there were so many of them uh, in, in America. And there were there were Zouaves in, in Poland and I think in, in Latin America and in the Papal States. And it kind of eyebrows were raised that they were formed in 1861, the Pontifical Zouaves. But various eyebrows in the Vatican were raised because, you know, here are Catholics wearing kind of Arab uniforms. So it's kind of all a bit yeah. you know, kind of uh, counterintuitive. Uh, yeah. In fact, somebody said somewhere, you know, you've got the, the kind of Turks wearing uh, military, uh, uh, European military uniforms during the Crimean War, and I, and you've got Europeans wearing kind of Arab uniforms. You know, it, it's kind of yeah. interchange of styles. 
it was very much the fashion at the time, though, wasn't it? it mm-hmm. It's um, like we had flares and um, stack yes. heels in the seventies, nineteen seventies. That is in the eighteen seventies. It was it was the uh, the zouave uniform. <laughs> um, so that starts in eighteen sixty one, and is that start is that the start of a rebuilding of the papal army? Yeah, because you know we we forget that the papal army in the last 10 years of its existence was really quite, you know, became quite modern and up to date. And mm. the, the, the thinking was, well, if the Pope is a sovereign, you know, if, if he wants to stand alongside all the other European leaders, he needs a, a modern army. Um, and one of my favorite facts in the book, which I, I got from another scholar, is that the papal army was the third army in Europe to get a basically a machine gun, a rapid firing gun. Um, I think that wow. he had the French and the English and then the papal states had a very primitive um, version. Only one of them never really used in anger, but they were foresighted enough to to uh, get one. Um, and even the papal name... That will be enough for me to get it on the war games table that you've, you've yeah, set me absolutely. up. absolutely. <laughs> and I forget the name, but it it's in the book somewhere. Mitrieurs. Uh... It, it was, um, I think, more primitive than that. Uh, and it yeah. was based on an American uh, invention. And I forget the name, but but it is somewhere uh, in the book. And, and even the Papal Navy, which we, I know you're big into uh, naval mm. things at the moment, but um, yeah. the last battleship of the Papal Navy was made in London in 1859 at one of the dockyard um, shipbuilders and then sent off uh, to the one of the ports in the, in the Papal States. So there's a lot of rebuilding and new units and 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 new weapons. So the recruitment then for the for the Zouave regiment is very different to the St Patrick's battalion, isn't it? It's it's much more international. So can you describe to us how how that takes place because people are coming from everywhere to join. They do and I mean initially it begins as a primarily kind of French, Belgian and Dutch phenomenon. Mm. In fact, the, the largest contingent were, were from Holland, which is surprising because Holland is actually a largely a Protestant country with quite a large Catholic population in the South, but a mm. lot of Dutch um, Zouaves. But certainly by 1867, it becomes really international. Uh, and it's mm. partly um, through official recruitment offices, especially in, in places like Austria and, and France, um, through committees, national committees, to to kind of arrange recruitment. Um, but in, in England and Ireland, it's still a little bit discreet because we don't want to rock too many boats. Mm-hmm. We don't want to um, lead to any anti-Catholic kind of riots. But I mean, one of the, I just love the fact that in various parishes around England in the eight, late 1860s, collections were made to buy breech loaders for the Pope. So can you imagine <laughs> at, at the end of Sunday mass, you know, okay, notices for the week, uh, there's a jumble sale uh, next uh, Friday at the uh, local convent school. And uh, if you want your first communion, uh, children to you know, make sure you come to the class. And uh, there's a collection on your way out to buy rifles for the Pope. Uh, and, you know, that was very much part of, of what was going on in the late 1860s. Breach loaders for the Pope. That's a, that's a bumper sticker <laughs> that I could quite happily have on my car. I would uh, <laughs> like that one. Um, <laughs> you've got a list of, you've got a list of the recruitment um, numbers and it's relatively steady away hundreds or so after the initial sort of um, inauguration of the, of the unit. And then 1866, 1867 is a big jump in numbers. Is there a sense of foreboding that brings those numbers in 
at those yep. particular years. Yeah, so in 1866, uh, due to a, a treaty that was signed, the French troops that were protecting the Pope, because let's not forget that the Pope isn't just protected by his own army, there's also lots of uh, French troops that belong to uh, Napoleon III's army. Um, they are removed from Rome um, in 1866. So the Pope feels much more isolated and in need of uh, foreign volunteers. And then in 1867, there is an attempted insurrection by Garibaldi. Uh, so that leads mm. to the Battle of Mentana. Um, and there's also various terrorist acts, basically, in Rome itself. You know, one of the barracks is, is kind of blown up. So as a result of those concerns, recruitment really uh, is increased. And there is actually a kind of, perhaps we sometimes forget this, uh, there's a, a kind of apocalyptic sense to all this. You know, mm. um, people like Garibaldi think they're fighting for the, the future of humanity. You know, there's a, there's a lot at stake. This kind of vision of of, of republics and, and kind of liberal ideals uh, continuing the French Revolution. And meanwhile, the, the Pope and his supporters are kind of fighting for tradition and legitimacy and faith. It's almost like a, a cosmic kind of culture war. Um, it's not mm. just about little little movements in Italian states. So there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of enthusiasm on both sides. Is that um, those that bombing in in Rome in the in the barracks was uh, supposed to be part of a more coordinated attack, wasn't it? If I remember correctly, there was supposed to be a number of bombings, and then yeah. um, it was one of the um, many times that Garibaldi shouted "Rome or death," um, yes, and yes. he didn't do either of them. Um, so, uh... <laughs> that's right. There were various attempts at um, yeah blowing up barracks and other key landmarks. And actually, that leads to some of the Irish Zouaves being sent home because there's a fear that some of these Irish Zouaves are secretly Fenian. You know, they belong to this kind of independence oh, movement oh, yeah. who also yeah. you know, blew things up in England. And the Pope kind of thought, hang on, this is a bit of a, you know, not a very good development. Yeah. Let's out of safety send some of them home. The regiment itself at this time is is quite healthy in terms of numbers, isn't it? It's... Um, I, I think it did it get to four battalions at one point it, it yes yeah growing. towards the end yeah towards the end and um there's a there's a book that prior to yours was was my main source of information and that's uh two years with the pontifical mm. zouaves um yes. which which was written by somebody who was in the zouaves yeah um and um have you, I take it you've read the book. Yeah, it's it's a very important source because it's written by yeah. one of the English uh, zouaves, Joseph Powell. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems to be mostly him swimming. If you uh, if you remember the book, yeah. <laughs> the the subtitle is something like a, a a narrative of travel around the papal states. So it's yeah. a little bit about military stuff, but a lot of it's about you know things I have seen, uh, Roman ruins and 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 swimming in big lakes and the different yeah. food yeah it's like a tra it's like a travel log with a bit of military stuck on the end yeah um, exactly and i think I, I think if i remember correctly the the description of mentana is is the official release that was done at the time time yes because yeah. he wasn't there was he no no he was one of the ones who joined just just afterwards but it's a very interesting very interesting piece very interesting piece um so we've um We've got our, we've got all our uniforms. We've got uh, uh, our very famous as well, very famous unit throughout the world, aren't they? The well known. Mm -hmm. mm. um, 
international nature was there a problem with language what was the official language do you know of the of yeah the official language was french um mm. and obviously it italian was quite useful um so if you yeah. didn't speak french or italian um you were in trouble i think the english kind of stuck together quite a lot some of them would have spoken mm. french but uh, there was an english zouave club uh where they could go to and play billiards and and read the newspaper oh. Uh, and um, there, there really was a kind of strong identity, uh, the English Zouaves and the and the Irish Zouaves, although the English and the Irish didn't get on. And there were lots of uh, <laughs> little little arguments between them, you know, and the Irish yeah, refused some, to use these. Yeah, there's some very interesting bits in, in the book about, about that particular argument. So like anything then, I suppose, um, like the, the modern French Foreign Legion, you've got to have a... A language of order, haven't you? You've got to have a language that is common throughout the troops, so that orders can be passed out in in battlefield. And you and you say that 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 was French. French, yes, yeah. So that leads us up then to um, the Battle of Mentana. Yes, um, and uh, one of my favourite subjects at the moment. Um, so uh, another Garibaldi, Rome or death. Uh, everyone's getting fed of that, fed up of that now. Um, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna have Rome or death. I'm gonna have um, the guns for the Pope. That's gonna be my. Oh, thing. I like that. Yeah, breach loaders for the Pope. For the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> so, just explain to the listeners the uh, the the situation for the build up to the Battle of Mentana. So there's a kind of twin movement, you know, there's various attempts within the city of Rome to blow up barracks and, um, you know, to take over various uh, key uh, points. I think that the flag of of revolution is is raised in various key locations, like the the capital, which was one of the, the centres of local government. Um, but also there are significant Garibaldian forces to the, the north of Rome in the country around Mentana, which is a few miles outside outside Rome. And so the papal and French troops, because by, by this time the French troops have returned to protect the Pope, um, the Franco-Papal uh, forces advance to meet the Garibaldians at Mentana. There were a few skirmishes beforehand, but they kind of set off early one Sunday morning in November 1867, and there's a, a, a pretty big battle um, at Mentana. Certainly in terms of uh that period there's there's very few large battles is there in in the in this part period of the Risorgimento. um and the garibaldians didn't do particularly well uh in in this battle do you think that i mean this is is an opinion do you think garibaldi had Dipped a bit like Napoleon at Waterloo, uh, or was it the the quality of troops that were the issue? Yeah, I think I think a bit of both, possibly. I think he was past his peak. I think he was suffering from, I think it was rheumatism, but by that and various mm. other ailments, he wasn't kind of on, on kind of peak form. Um, and actually, he left the battlefield of Mentana, um, sort of in the mid afternoon, and kind of left the scene of the battle to to go elsewhere. I think he went to Tivoli, um, to the to the east. But the troops also, they, they, these are not some, perhaps some of the guys he had in previous campaigns. It's a pretty motley crew, um, mm. uh, uh, not particularly well trained, using obsolete uh, weapons to some extent. And of course, it's the French who are fighting with the papal forces. They have a brand new rifle which yes. they're trying out for the first time. 
Shasapo. Mm. Uh, and there's a kind of myth that it, it Mentana was won by the Shasapo rifle. Um, uh, and there's a counter argument that actually that it didn't have such a decisive effect. Uh, a lot of the French troops weren't, weren't fully trained in using it. So the effectiveness was mm. perhaps limited. And actually there was a lot of hand-to-hand fighting uh, involving the Zouabs, especially, which um, really won the day. Because the the battle itself is is started by the papal forces, isn't it? The uh, general uh, Kanzler. Yes, he, he's taken over from La Maurissia at this from at this time as the as the commander. Yeah, a German general. Yeah, he leads forward the papal zouaves, and uh, there's a couple of the Legion d'Antibes and yes. another one. Like yeah, and and the and the and the, and the, and the, uh, the dragoons are kind of yeah, and it's you know, it's easy mm. to forget. The other units in the papal army it was not just about yeah. zouaves um but there were other units as well and indeed you know the kind of basic line infantry um uh, so and the french aren't involved for quite some time are they, they no they, they, they only come back. they're kind of a kind of reserve force and there is a suggestion that kind of napoleon the third doesn't want them too involved they're kind of there if necessary but you know uh, they're there as a reserve to intervene if they have to because Napoleon III is such a complex and conflicted character. Because on the one hand, he's trying to win Catholic votes by helping protect the Pope, um, but also he's a big supporter of the Resurgimento, and he's you know in communication with people like King Victor Emmanuel and earlier Cavour. So he's kind of on both sides. He's trying to be all things to all all people, and it doesn't really work. And he and he is happy to support the Pope, but also he's a little bit kind of you know reserved have, have you had an opportunity to to visit mentana at all not since writing this book I, i've kind of been uh pretty near mentana but obviously i wrote this in lockdown and um yeah, yeah. i had I, I was a bit limited in terms of of travels um although i did get some pictures uh from castle fidardo the other battlefield wow, because yeah um amazingly two of my parishioners uh come from families who are from castle fidardo and I, I was Amazing. just chatting to them about various stuff, and they kind of said, "Oh yes, my my grandmother lives there." And I, I thought, Castle Fidardo, wow, you know, can I be in touch with your cousins and can they take some photos for me? <laughs> so, <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. How generally then are the papal zouaves perceived as having performed in that battle? I, I think there's a lot of uh, anti-zouave literature. You know, there were poems written by people like Victor Hugo kind of saying, look, the Pope is massacring his own countrymen and, and the Zouaves mm. are kind of, you know, really uh, evil. But for Catholics, they're seen as, as great heroes. And especially those who are killed in action, including our own Julian Watts Russell, uh, who was from England, uh, a convert family. Uh, he And he, he's killed towards the end of the battle at the age of 17. And he's, wow. his body is taken back to Rome and really treated a bit like a, a kind of saint. You know, he's he's laid in state, evergreen leaves around him. He, he holds the, a martyr's palm in his hands. You know, the candles everywhere. Mm. He's almost regarded as a kind of martyr for the for the cause. Yeah, it's um, it's a fascinating battle and a fascinating build up to the battle. And um, there's some there's a lovely map of of the of the battle in in your book, and also a um a a list of uh, troops who were present as well, an order of battle. I've seen lots of different orders of battle for the Garibaldians. Um, anything from 
kind of 4,000 men up to 20,000 men. Were you able to narrow that down? Does the 20,000 come from like media hype or to, to make it look like an even bigger win? Yeah, I mean, numbers are uh, notoriously difficult, aren't they, for, for, for battles, mm. especially of this period. And I think the the Catholic writers want to, wanted to exaggerate the size of the Garibaldian threat. You know, didn't we mm. do well in defeating this massive force? Um, whilst perhaps those in favour of Garibaldi, well, either they wanted to stress the number of casualties or they wanted to say, you know, um, why did the Pope, uh, why was he so aggressive in in in, in kind of killing a, a fairly small um, force. But uh, the order of battle I included, I think, was from an, an Italian book that I found. And I just, you know, I kind of acknowledged it. And I thought, well, that's, you know, can't find it, any better information really than that. That's, that must have, you know, some truth behind it. But Garibaldi, I mean, is is really um, elusive, isn't he, to find out much about the the military side of Garibaldi. I mean, there's, there's not really many books in English at least about you know the, the forces of Garibaldi and, and, and what weapons did he use and what were the units and you know it is it, quite difficult to find out. Yeah I think a lot of that will be down or is down to the fact that Garibaldi uh, as an individual was never a state so mm. he never mm. had like the systems of you know like the papal states with there'll yeah. be somebody in the papal states going how much are you spending on weapons I want to know mm-hmm. Where the money's going? How, how, how much for how much for gunpowder? Hang on a minute, hang on. Yeah, a minute. So you yeah, are, you have yeah. all this um, record keeping and accountants and stuff behind the the army, and it's within a mm-hmm. a state context. Whereas Garibaldi is just some bloke who goes, "Right, come on, lads, this way over yes, here. Yes. <laughs> Picks pick a red shirt up when when you leave home, and then we'll all fit in." <laughs> uh, so I think that's that that may be maybe the reason why. I think that's that's really true. Yeah. So it's a it's it's a victory for the papal and French troops, and um, Garibaldi's push on Rome ends. Um, so just describe the the history just after the battle. Then what? How how does it develop from there? So Mentana is kind of Garibaldi's swan song when it comes to Italian unification. He, he has no further military involvement in the unification of Italy and his uh, focus kind of moves to France in, in 1870. Meanwhile, you know, the Papal States is extended um, in, in its in its life by, by three plus years. The numbers of Zouave recruits rapidly increases. There's a real kind of enthusiasm um, and an expectation that, you know, this is going to happen again. There's going to be another Mentana. Uh, so we need to go over to Rome and, and defend him. But nothing really happens for a few years. Uh, and it all kind of suddenly crashes to the ground in 1870, really largely due to the Franco-Prussian mm. War. Do you want to kind of cover that now? Or, or do you want to... Cause yeah, that's no, that, final that, yeah chapter. that's fine. Because we, we, we've got that... We're at that point now, aren't we, where... The French are concentrating on the Franco-Prussian War, and their their military might is going to save their own country at the end of the day. And the Papal States are, are left a little bit vulnerable, to say the least. Um, and it all kind of comes to a head, doesn't it, in September eighteen seventy? Yeah, which is 
which is kind of often forgotten. We all assume that Rome is the capital of Italy, but you know, Rome is taken by force by the Italian army uh, in September 1870. And as usual, it kind of uses very uh, diplomatic language. You know, that the Italians are trying to protect the Pope uh, and, and get rid of any kind of foreign influence. In fact, there is a quite a bit of criticism of the fact that the Pope, who is Italian, is using foreign bayonets to to, to kind of um, support him. You know, there's mm. many people who think it should be Italian bayonets, not foreign bayonets. So they're kind of pretending that the Italian army is coming to protect the Pope. Um, but of course, it is, you know, no agreement is, is reached between them and they enter the city uh, aggressively. Sometimes it's referred to as the siege of Rome. Certainly the, mm. the ancient walls are bombarded. Uh, a breach is made on the 20th of September in the morning and the Italian troops, the Bersalieri, rush through and the papal army surrenders. You know, the Pope kind mm. of says, look, make a point of this defense, but but we don't want a bloodbath. So as soon as the walls are breached and the Italians come in, then I'm afraid, lads, you're going to have to lay down your, your arms because we're not actually a military. Um, military power is not the, the, the key thing here. Is that then the beginnings of the Vatican City? As we know, not it. immediately, no, because um, the Vatican City only dates from 1929, uh, when mm. an agreement is made with the Italian government. Um, so for several decades, uh, there's this kind of rather grey area. You know, the Vatican will be seen as papal property. Um, the papacy has certain diplomatic rights. You know, it's not that he's not just a subject of, mm. of the King of Italy, but he, the Pope, regards himself as a prisoner of the Vatican, and he doesn't move away from the Vatican's. Um, site uh, until some agreement is made. So there's this kind of very uh, dark period and the Pope even uh, refuses, he prohibits any Catholics from engaging with the Italian state. Obviously not, not all of them uh, obey, but you know, technically you're not supposed to be involved in Italian politics as a Catholic because mm. the Italians took away Rome, you know, aggressively. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Very, very interesting. And, and Garibaldi at this time um, in 1870, he, he, after screaming Rome or death for ages, um, he's actually not there when the um, when the walls are breached. That's right. And uh, when Napoleon III is defeated by the uh, the Germans, and then the French Republic continue that fight, uh, the second stage of the Franco-Prussian War, uh, Garibaldi joins the French Republican forces. And so do many of the former papal zouaves, the French zouaves. Um, they join a new unit called the Volunteer, uh, Volunteers of the West, um, and mm. they fight on the same side as Garibaldi against the the Germans. Um, so it's kind of I don't think they had much to do with each other, but it is a, a really quirky little <laughs> little uh, kind of after after story, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it's an amazing twist in in history that we they, they ended up on the on the same side. One thing that has fascinated me throughout my interest in history is is the motivation of people going to fight. And when, um, for example, in World War Two, the threat of Nazism, the direct threat to the UK, you know, ev virtually everyone, right? I'm off. I'm I'm going down to to the recruitment hall. Yet with this. We've talked a little bit about it earlier on. Um, it's not that straightforward, is it? It's not an immediate threat to your 
livelihood on your, on your home. So you've got a really interesting chapter where you, British and Irish Croots, chapter 12, where you talk about some of the individual people involved. We've got pictures of them as well, which is absolutely amazing. Um, and he talked quite a lot about motivation. So what was your feeling as you were researching this and going through the individual characters? What was coming through was the drive. I mean, it, it differs from individual to individual, of course. Mm. And there are all sorts of factors we're probably not aware of. You know, the peer pressure, the um, the inspiration of a sibling or a family member, even, you know, a, a parent kind of saying, look, we want you to do this. But I think, you know, although it sounds a bit cliched, I think obviously faith was a big part of it. Because mm. you're not really going to go and fight for the Pope if you don't believe in the Catholic faith in some way. Um, I think that sense that, as I mentioned earlier, there is a, an apocalyptic struggle going on, you know, uh, mm. tradition versus modernity, faith versus reason, you know, all these things going on in the 19th century, partly a result of the French Revolution. And I think just as Italians perhaps were fighting for their nation, I think Catholics were fighting for their nation, which they saw as kind of Christendom or or the church or whatever, you know, so they even saw themselves as belonging to this this nation that that transcended you know nation states and was driven by their faith but there was also you know uh, the desire for adventure and travel and new experiences and you know learning a new language uh, and all the all the usual stuff as well and, and i mean most of the zouaves were not soldiers they hadn't had they had no military background so i, I don't think many of them were actually the kind of people who fought in many, many different armies and, you know, were um, mm. kind of veterans of numerous campaigns, but they, they really did believe in this particular uh, struggle. So it's not, there's, there's not a mercenary element. There's not a, uh, I'm a soldier, I'm a professional soldier, therefore I'm going to go and do this because I'm a Catholic. I don't think so. Uh, people did call them mercenaries uh, and they, mm. and, and they were re really hated that title because, Largely because there was no money in it, you know. I mean, you were not well paid <laughs> as a zouave. You got to wear a silly yeah. uniform, ridiculously baggy trousers, and you didn't really get paid. So, you, you, what was it? You had to do it for a much deeper, a deeper reason. And of course, there was the desire for for glory and you know, and and setting a good example and becoming a, a hero and perhaps even a martyr. Some people were on both sides mm. were were ready to die for their their cause. You looking at the photographs, you were allowed to have some pretty spectacular facial hair as well um yes and that was deliberate because a lot of the zouaves were quite young i mean it's, look, let's be honest it's a kind of young man's uh cause i don't mm. think either of us probably would have um left our livelihoods to, <laughs> to 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 be involved in this necessarily but they actually drew they grew whiskers just so they looked a bit older so they you know the, these kind of teenagers i think it's um looking back now it, it's hard for us in our comfortable homes um, with everything that we've got and, um, and, you know, television and all that sort of stuff to imagine doing this. It's a, it's an interesting, that, that thing that you said about uh, adventure, going for an adventure, you know, we can now go mountain biking down the forest or, mm. um, leisure is a, is a big part of our daily lives whereas uh, in the 1870s surviving and feeding your family was 
what the day the day was all about. So I can imagine for for many of these um, young men who went, it was a big adventure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and, and a way to travel. I mean, having said that, a lot of them were middle class, so the Zouaves yeah. especially were. They were, you know, they had some money, and perhaps they would have had mm. some access to uh, hobbies. I mean, one of the Zouaves became a cricketer for, I think, Somerset and, and Middlesex. You know, so he was you know, very, and, and, the, and the Zouaves had a cricket team in Rome, and they used to play um, the other kind of expat Englishmen. Um, so there was there were certain leisure activities they had access to, but yeah, it was one big adventure going to uh, to Rome. When it was all over um, and people came back, um, there does seem to be a, a sense of celebrity from the book. People are, you know, uh, they're having the photographs taken in the Zouave uniform, which is, you know, we're in the early days of photography, so, so not everyone's having a snap. Um, in your in your research, did that come across as, um, as something that happened to these people when they came back? They were certainly very proud of their experience. Mm. And often after their name, they would put the letters ZP, you know, Zouave Pontifical. And on some of their gravestones, you can, I've seen one or two in England, you know, they very proudly say Pontifical Zouave under their name. So as if it was one of the highlights of their their life. But there's not really much of a veteran kind of organisation. They don't do parades or anything. There's, There's not much of a homecoming. I think also some... They're probably seen as a bit of an embarrassment by some Catholics. You know, the, the Pope has lost Rome, uh, and certainly after a decade or so, you know, people's uh, kind of priorities shift. And mm. you know, the fact that people were fighting for the Pope's army now that the Pope is a purely spiritual leader, perhaps it's seen as something to to be downplayed a bit. Mm. But I think I think they, the sense I get from reading the book is that that they had an immense sense of pride for yes. what they did. Yeah. And yeah, they definitely wore they wore their medals with pride. Um and um it's a fantastic book. It is a really, really interesting book. Not just if you're interested in the in the period, but also if you are, you know, interested as I am in motivation uh for fighting, etc. Um you've got some great appendices, you've got names of all the people who went. How long did it take yeah. to put that together? Well, there was a, a wonderful uh, book, which is online, thank God, a, a French uh, volume, which just lists all the papal zouaves, uh, a matriculation list published uh, about 100 years ago. So I just went through that, tried to find all the English um, all the English zouaves. And sadly, I also had a one, I had one for Scottish and Irish zouaves as well, but there wasn't, I had a very uh, strict word limit uh, for the book, so I wasn't able to include <laughs> include all those. When I was given the word limit, I think it was 100,000 words, I kind of thought, how am I going to do that? But then I had to sort of cut quite a lot um, at, at the end. Yeah, it's a bit like these podcasts where, uh, you know, we say an hour and then it just keeps going. It, it's, it's, all, <laughs> it's always that way. It's yeah, always exactly. that way. But, but Ken, Ken can, you, can you tell us a little bit about your interest in Mentana because um, and, and how you got into all of this? Because it is such yeah. a kind of neat, yeah. niche subject really isn't it yeah of course i um i wouldn't class myself as religious um but i am very interested in the history of religion um so i will go to churches as a historical visit rather than as a, a you know a, a spiritual place to, to to visit um 
so there is a there's always been an interest in that i think from from earlier early on you know at school we always had uh religious services and you know maybe i didn't get involved in in the spiritual side of thing but i certainly went oh this, this has been around a while this is really really interested and i mean i'm interested i'm very interested in how the church brings solace to people um and and the, the, the you know the work that they do with with, with poor etc and stuff like that. it's all very very interested and certainly in the uk and italy you, you can't go very far from history before the church is involved from whatever denomination denomination yeah denomination thank you thank you nick i needed an expert for that word certain (laughs) words you can't get so um i love italy i've been to italy many many times and going around italian churches is is just a joy i have been fortunate enough to go visit vatican city on on a number of occasions and regardless of your religious beliefs um saint peter's is just mm. it is just unbelievable mm. um and mm. i remember walking down um through the church to where saint peter is but the the sunlight was coming through the window and it, mm-hmm. it was it was like reflecting and there was like a shaft of life coming down onto the onto the area mm. where the tomb is and I, you know whatever religion you are that's going to move you it was just mm. uh, one of those things so i really really love that i've already interested in the italian wars so the borgias uh julius um julius the second the warrior pope um so i've got that interest in the papal states already and then this podcast was the problem because at the end of the show like we're doing now i always get my guests to ask me a question and uh, a friend of mine uh fraser von ketteringham he's got a youtube channel um asked me what was the one unit i would like to paint that i haven't <laughs> that isn't the polish winged who's ours and i've had this image of the saint patrick's battalion in my head must be for 30 odd years i've seen a picture of it somewhere in a book or a magazine and I said, so I said that and in typical Wargamer style, um, I went online, found somebody who made them and ordered them and painted them and then thought, what am I going to do with this? So <laughs> it was um, it was then, I'm going to research, I, you know, I'm, it's a new period. I don't know much about it. Start reading books. I start getting information on Garibaldi. Um, and um, I thought, right, I'm going to do the Battle of Mentana. Nobody's heard of it. Let's go for it. Um, and it, it's just developed more and more my interest in that period of history, uh, and also the papal states as well, which is just mm-hmm. a, a, a big interest, in, big interest of mine. So that's where it comes from, Nick. It was um, mm-hmm. somebody challenged me to paint a unit of figures, and here we are, two years later, and I'm down a massive rabbit hole, and we're talking about <laughs> it on the internet. <laughs> Well, I really want to see your Mentana game if it ever comes somewhere close to Uxbridge. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be yeah. fantastic yeah. to see it. You, it'd be great to have you along uh, and see you see you in person. Um, any plans for any more books, Nick? You, you... Yeah, I mean, I always love 
researching. I mean, it's the kind of way I relax is to do a bit of research and, and, and writing. I've got a few ideas in terms of military subjects. I mean, the three three or four ideas I had, and I'm not. I don't really know if I've got time to be honest. Mm. One, the obvious one would be to do a sequel, which is Garibaldi, to look at um, yeah. perhaps uh, the the 1860 campaign and 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 try and piece together that a little bit and and look at the the Garibaldian uh, forces. Um, I was also quite intrigued by the uh, French invasion of Mexico, which was a few years, yeah. um, well, in the, in the mid 1860s. And the little-known British involvement, because originally it was a combined French, British, and, and Spanish um, operation. So possibly something about the, the early stages of that. And the other idea was uh, I'm giving a talk to the local history society in a, in a few months about the, the rifle volunteers of Uxbridge and the Uxbridge yeomanry and some of the kind of oh. um, amateur military units in this part of Middlesex. Perhaps something like something could come out of that as well. I don't know. But... I kind of a bit, a bit, a bit time, a bit time short at the moment for, uh, it's a, it's a lot of work d- doing books. Um, and I really love it, but you do need, you know, lots of spare evenings, but the wonderful thing is, is just how prolific military publishing is. And, you know, it, it mm. is quite, it is relatively easy to publish something if you have an idea and you want to put the work in, you know, and thank God for publishers like Helion who are, you know, produce yeah. so many titles every year. Well, it's been lovely, lovely having you on the show, Nick. Thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Uh, Victorian Crusaders by Nicholas Schofield, Hellion from Hellion. Uh, highly recommended by me, uh, not just for the period, but also for the read. It is a really good book. Um, thanks once again, Nick. If you'd like to say good night to you. everyone. Good night, everyone. A pleasure being with you. Lovely. Good night, everyone. What a lovely chat there with Nick. I really enjoyed uh, the time that we spent chatting about uh, the Papal Zouaves and uh, St. Patrick's Battalion. Really educational for me. Very enjoyable. Nick's such a a lovely, engaging chap, and he knows his stuff. So um, it was a well-spent hour and a half, uh, hour and 40 minutes uh, by me. And I hope you enjoyed it as well. Um, It's... uh, the joy of doing these podcasts is I get to speak to people I want to speak to and I'm not forced into any interviews through sponsorship or the requirement or need to get a big name onto the show uh, to get the numbers up or go down and get somebody from Bolt Action or 40K or, you know, these other areas have lots and lots of podcasts. So, I'm here to do the Yorkshire Gamer thing, so and I'm glad so many of you come along and listen to it with me. Uh, I am going to keep the name of my next guest under wraps. Uh, hopefully, it's going to come out in three weeks' time, although we're still having a few little technical issues trying to get the episode sorted, so I don't want to give the name out and then it doesn't happen, uh, and I might need to get a last-minute substitution in. So we shall see how we go, but if it comes off, it's going to be another really, really good episode. So thanks once again for taking the time to listen to us. Uh, I'll put a link in the notes for uh, a, a place to get Nick's book from if you're interested in grabbing a copy. Uh, highly recommended by me. Uh, I know I'm not on commission, and yes, I did pay for my copy. So <laughs> it just leaves me to say, if you're able to design and produce a bumper sticker that says, Breach Loaders for the Pope, I'll have a few off you. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you in three weeks. See you.